This is Spotlight on France. I'm Alison Hurd. And I'm Sarah Elzis. Coming up, moral harassment. We speak to the psychiatrist who introduced that concept into the French Labour Code and how the France telecom trial is putting it to the test. And apostasy. The French Catholic Church is seeing an increasing number of requests from people wanting to be debaptized in the wake of the sex abuse scandals. But first, we're voting this Sunday, aren't we, Sarah? Uh, who knew? If you look at likely turnout here in France, not that many people know or really seem to care that there is an election for the European Parliament. Participation in EU elections tends to be quite low in France, about 40% turnout. This compared to presidential elections that have about 75%. An opinion poll showed that the French thought Mother's Day this Sunday was more important than voting in EU elections. Go figure. There's not been much of a campaign, to be fair. It did start late because of the yellow vest protests, the uh, great debate results, and of course the Notre Dame fire that took a lot of attention. Though the parties tried to kick up some energy this week with several televised debates, candidates also picking up on issues like the environment. Greening of the campaign came a bit late though, didn't it? Some are even saying it's opportunistic now. And what's really emerged is that this election seems to be about President Emmanuel Macron. He's banked a lot on his party getting the most of France's seats in the parliament. And his strongest opponent is the National Rally, formerly the National Front. That's Marine Le Pen's party. The other parties have actually accused Macron of turning this into a two-horse race, kind of like the second round of the presidential election. Il y a une élection, oui, bon, alors, euh, Macron ou Le Pen Vous pouvez pas venir ah, ici en disant c'est grâce à Emmanuel Macron et c'est grâce à la liste en marche. Vous pouvez voter contre le Front National, l'extrême droite. Pour la seule liste capable de battre celle d'Emmanuel Macron. Ah mais tiens, il y a une autre élection, Macron ou Le Pen Ça fatigue. Those are voices from the debates and the campaign trail. The last one, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, saying Macron or Le Pen, this is getting tiring. It's true that Macron does have a lot to lose, especially if his party loses to the Eurosceptic National Rally. He's also facing a lot of opposition from the mainstream left and the mainstream right at home. All this will play out in these elections. We'll be picking up the results of this election and its importance for France next week. One of the big stories in France this week and which has split the country is the Vincent Lambert case. Sarah, he's 42. He's been in a vegetative state in a hospital since 2008 after he had a motorbike accident. So he's been kept on life support for more than a decade. Now, this wouldn't normally happen, but his parents, who are devout Catholics, refused to let him be taken off life support. His wife, who is his legal representative, and six of his siblings are in favor. The case has been in and out of court for years, going as high as the European Court of Human Rights, which upheld a French court's decision to allow doctors to take him off of life support. On Monday, doctors began the process of removing his feeding tubes. His wife said he could finally be at peace, but his mother was devastated. They're killing him, she said. It's euthanasia in disguise. It's horrible. I'm his mother. I have the right to defend him. And later that day, in a dramatic turnabout, the court ruling was overturned, this pending a decision by the UN Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Doctors were ordered to put the feeding tubes back in. 
This case has highlighted deep divisions over right to life in France, which have been bubbling along for years now, Sarah. Euthanasia is illegal here, but doctors are allowed to put terminally ill patients into deep sedation. That's in line with the law that was drafted in 2016 after an awful lot of parliamentary debate. So the procedure allows for such patients to make their wishes known through advanced directives, in other words, living wills. But only 13% of people have actually written these directives. So the decision whether or not to end life support usually falls to families. And as we've seen in this case, family can be very, very complicated. Some advocates want France to copy Belgium, which puts a kind of hierarchy in the decision-making process. First, it's the spouse, then adult children, and only then do the parents have a right to decide. But even if that did come into effect, it wouldn't necessarily end the controversy. Devout Catholics have become increasingly vocal in recent years over this issue and others. And they got support this week from Pope Francis. On Monday, he said that life should always be safeguarded, and he appealed for France not to give in to what he called throwaway culture. This is no longer a religious issue either. It's become political. Members of the far right have been supportive of the parents of Vincent Lambert. But President Macron himself refused to be drawn into the issue. He said the decision to stop treatment was taken after continual dialogue between the doctors and his wife, who is his legal representative. And now to go back in time. And we're going back to 1950, May 22nd, 1950, when France passed a law officially recognizing Mother's Day as the last weekend of May, so this Sunday. And it's none other than Maréchal Pétain, head of the Vichy government, which collaborated with the Nazis, who's often credited with introducing the holiday to France. He certainly pushed it. It was a way of putting women on a pedestal. In 1942, he made a speech calling women an inspiration to our Christian civilization. But he was continuing an idea that has its roots in the natalist movement of the late 19th century. By the 1880s, France's birth rate was dropping in comparison to its neighbors. There was a move to found associations of fathers of large families. They introduced the concept of a day to honor fathers and mothers of large families. Emile Zola chimed in. In an article in 1896, he decried the voluntary limiting of births, which he said provokes a moral and social tragedy. He expanded these ideas in his novel of 1899 called Fecondité, or Fertility, about a couple with 12 children. 12 children, fertile indeed. Interestingly, I read that he and his wife never had any children of their own. He only ended up fathering children through his mistress. Um, there's a town, isn't there, that claims to be the birthplace of Mother's Day here in France? Yeah, in June 1906, the founder of the Fraternal Union of Meritorious Fathers of the village of Artas in the Alps honored two mothers of nine children. It was perhaps the first officially sanctioned commemoration in France. The idea of Mother's Day really took off, though, during the First World War, when American civilian aid groups and soldiers stationed in Europe started sending cards home to their mothers. After the war, by 1920, French cities were charged with honoring mothers and fathers of large families. This primed the ground for the Vichy regime, pushing a certain idea of French purity, moved forward by large families produced by virtuous French women. And after the war, the French government officialized the holiday in 1950. Makes you wonder whether you should be marking this holiday at all. Maybe we should just value our mothers whenever we feel like it. As 
If the Côte d'Azur weren't hot enough, temperatures rose this week with the screening of Mektoub My Love Intermezzo at the Cannes Film Festival. Some people found the prolonged sexual content in French director Abdelatif Keshish's film a little too much and they walked out. As the festival draws to a close on Saturday, with the announcement of this year's Palme d'Or and Keshish's film is one of six French nominations, we look at the other French productions this year. Yes, that is very chauvinistic, I know, given that it's an international film festival, but hey, this is Spotlight on France. Rosalind Hyams is in Cannes, following all the action, and this is her take on some of the French highlights. There are six French films just in the Golden Palm competition, which is one more probably, sometimes two more than the usual number. There's Les Miserables, which is an impressive start for director Lajli. It shows how chronic social tension due to exclusion and poverty spawns potentially explosive consequences. Atlantique, directed by Matty Diop, set in Senegal, shows the class and economic divide and attitudes towards workers that have them risk their lives in unsuitable vessels to get to Europe and what they imagine will be a better and more dignified existence. There's a supernatural angle to that film, which has quite broad appeal at the moment. There's also Céline Chiamar's 18th century period film, A Love Story, that's called Portrait of a Young Lady on Fire, and it's filmed just like a painting, Alison. That film has been described as a masterpiece. Um, it's interesting in the format, indeed, the way Céline Chiamar has shot this film. Um, in translating the notion of a painting on screen. We've also seen this actually in another French film that's in the Un Certain Regard section that's called The Swallows of Kabul that's adapted from a novel by Yasmina Kadra by the French director Zabou Breitman with an animation illustrator, Elea Gobe-Melevec. And the same way in Schirmer's film, you have the impression that you're looking at paintings. You could be walking around um, a gallery. In this film, you have the impression that you're reading a book at the same time. You're turning the pages at the same time as you're watching this film. It's amazing what we can, the experiences we can have at the cinema. Um, the films elsewhere um, around in Cannes, obviously there's the market. It's the 60th anniversary of the market. There are a lot of producers with films made in France or by French directors there. You know, this very big um, economic hub of the festival but in the parallel selections you also have a number of French films and in fact the director's fortnight is interesting because it started it opened with a film by French director Quentin Quentin Dupieux who's also known as Mr Oiseau by his music fans um, and that's a film that's set in the States where Dupieux has spent a lot of time and then the closing film on Thursday night was a film by uh, Benoit Forger that's called Eve and that is a film about how we deal with artificial intelligence. It's very interesting, it's funny, mm. and it's about a rapper, so there's an amazing soundtrack um, with lots of rude words in it. Roslyn, the former culture minister and writer André Malraux famously said that cinema isn't just art, it's an industry. So, of course, films have to sell, and not just in France. Which of the French films that you've seen could you imagine exporting well? Well, I actually think this film uh, by Benoit Forgia, Eve, um, it has so much humour in it. And can you imagine, the star is an intelligent fridge. So it's so wacky that it 
really could have a broad appeal and there's the music factor as well and it's interesting to note that the bigger French films that get the boost obviously, this one may not get that kind of boost but the artist um, of 2011 Amélie Poulain in 2001 and Le Môme in 2007 which won Marion Cotillard Oscar, those were big scale productions and they did do very well abroad and they're all musicals I think music is, is a factor that was Rosalind Hyams all the way from the Cannes Festival. We talked about it last week. The trial of France Telecom, the company and former top managers, are accused of moral harassment, putting intense pressure on employees during a restructuring in the mid-2000s when dozens of people committed suicide or tried to. The company at the time had just privatized. It was facing intense competition from other telecoms, and it was dealing with a technological revolution with the introduction of mobile phones, growing internet use. The company decided it had to get rid of 22,000 people out of its 120,000-person staff, but not through layoffs. Instead, managers encourage people to leave, allegedly by pushing them to the edge, constant transfers, changing job descriptions. Marie-France Hirigoyen, a psychiatrist, treated some France Telecom employees at the time. She's an expert in workplace harassment, and she coined the idea of moral harassment that was incorporated to an amendment of the Labor Code in 2001. France Telecom CEO at the time, Didier Lombard, who's on trial, argues that the suicides were a social phenomenon. He said they were following a trend. People were just under stress. But Hirigoyen told me that harassment is different, and it affects you differently. There is a confusion between a psychosocial risk and harassment. Harassment is one of the psychosocial risks, but it is specific. And we know that the consequences on the health are different. For instance, uh, uh, stress, burnout, and harassment. Harassment, it's an attack to the identity of the person. It's not the way the person is working, but it is the person himself or herself uh, which is attacked. When you are stressed, you know that you have to do a lot, it's too much, you are tired, but it doesn't attack your identity or your dignity. Because work in France, work all over the place, but you know, work is, is part of somebody's identity. It's not Part, it's very important for the identity because in our world, everything is fluid. So when you are recognized in your, what you are doing in the workplace, uh, it's important for you to say what you are. There, I am good at what I'm doing. And it's true, actually, in France, there's always been this, this coupling of the identity and the work. You know, this, oh, oui, I am an ouvrier, I'm a worker, I'm an agriculteur, I'm a farmer, I'm a cadre, I'm a manager. You know, there's, interestingly, in a place where work maybe hasn't been as valued in the past, it's still been very much part of an identity of somebody when describing a person or a group of people. We have to be someone in the society, but in a group. Before we had the homogeneous groups, unions for the workplace, the family, and now you have just small places where you have a group of people thinking the same way in the workplace, and you are very lonely. 
you have to uh, be recognized somewhere. France Telecom, this situation happened about 10 years ago, we're talking about, and of course yeah. it's going to, to court now. Today, 10 years later, how have things changed? I am pessimistic about that because in France, since uh, France Telecom, we had more protection. But at the same time, management is becoming tougher and tougher. Because of the system, the capitalist system, we need more competitivity. There is more pressure on people and people are accept that because they have no choice. But I think there is something which is changing. The young people, they don't want this way. They want a normal life. Is that movement, I mean, you're saying it's young people, but it's also, you know, France is always caricatured as a place where people take a lot of vacation and have short work hours, but there's also, the caricature has its, its roots in reality in that people do appreciate having time off. And it is important, I think, on a social level for people to live their lives. I mean, that it's built into our system here. Is that movement towards saying, no, we're not going to accept this, this shift in management? Is France maybe a really good place to start pushing back on that because it's part of the social fabric? I would love that, that France would be at the beginning of, of changing. I would love that. But I'm not sure. It's only a few young people, uh, well educated. There is a, a gap between the one very well educated, the one who are sure to have a good job, and the others. Going back to France Telecom, the verdict in this case, what kind of impact will it have, whether it is deemed that there was moral harassment or not? How important is this case today? I think it's very, very important. I expect that they will consider that it is moral harassment uh, as a message for the other head of companies. It is a, a symbol saying this way of managing people is not possible. That was psychiatrist Marie-France Hirigoyen. France is a secular country. Church and state are officially separated, but Catholicism is the main religion here, and more than two-thirds of French people have been baptized. This may seem surprising, because fewer than 5% are practicing Catholics and attend Mass. What's more, adherence to the Church is dropping, especially in the wake of recent paedophilia and sex abuse scandals. It's impossible to know, Sarah, how many people officially renounce their faith, that's to say resort to apostasy, but even the French French Bishops' Conference says the numbers of requests is going up. Alexis Bédu met two women who were in the process of officially renouncing their Catholic faith in France. Ayant reçu mon baptême en votre église le 10 septembre 1985, Charlotte has been thinking about apostasy, officially renouncing a Catholic faith. She's reading the letter she sent to the parish where she was baptized as a baby in 1985. She had already abandoned her faith as a child, and over the years, 
she has witnessed ongoing scandals in the church. Pedophilia, rapes of nuns, this isn't something that surprises me. Fifteen years ago, when I was thinking about apostasy, in the region where I grew up, there was an incident of incest in a Catholic family. I saw how they reacted, how they rejected civilian justice, and they wanted to appeal to divine justice. At the time, it really shocked me. That's also a reason that I wanted to go forward today. It took her a while because she was worried about her family's reaction. She said they would not understand, which is why she won't tell them even now. My family is not closing their eyes on what's happening in the church, but they won't understand the move. They'll take it for a global rejection of their education, which it isn't. But today I feel I can turn my back on this religious part of my education. And I know personally it'll lighten me to no longer be part of the church. Charlotte has spoken a lot about getting debaptized with her friend Zoe, a few years younger than she is who has been turned off by many things in the Catholic Church over the years. She got to thinking about officially renouncing her faith during the debate around gay marriage in 2012 and 2013. To see that the Church was clearly against homosexual marriage, that was one thing. Then there's the anti-abortion stance, that's the second reason. And then the stories of pedophilia coming out all over the world, that was big. The French Catholic Church has been a focal point of these scandals, with sex abuse accusations against priest Bernard Prena and Bishop Philippe Barbarin, who was convicted this year of covering up the abuse. Zoe ended up involving her family in her decision because in order to get debaptized, she had to find out the date of her baptism. She asked her mother. Because it was during the Prena affair, she understood right away. She said, you want to be debaptized? And I said, yes. And she said, well, why not? It will raise a debate in the family. Our family is pretty Catholic, though not very practicing. My father told me I was wasting my time, though. Your apostasy will do nothing to change the church, he said. I think that attitude is too bad because it is the one thing we can do. Even if it won't rock the church, if more people do it, it's the only symbolic act we can do to show we disagree. It's hard to know how many people are taking the step. The website Apostasy for All, which proposes a form letter that you can send to your parish, has seen a tenfold increase in visits to the site over the last several months. The church itself does not provide these statistics. Vincent Lemont, spokesperson of the French Bishops' Conference, confirms that there are more requests today than before, and he understands. The Pope and the French bishops have said it. There have been horrible things committed by priests, and there's a silence that was maintained. Sometimes even bishops covered up these mistakes. We know it. The victims who were abused and who suffered from the silence of the church, we need to first focus on them. And then the other people who didn't suffer directly, but who are angry and scandalized by the attitude of the church. We understand that they want to leave the path that they had taken with the church. We are sad about it. If you compare the church to a path, baptism is a first step. 
People are choosing to leave the path because it's full of traps and obstacles. And it's ugly because the church made mistakes. That this makes people leave the path is understandable. He evokes the idea of a path that you can leave but not abandon because the Catholic Church does not allow for you to be officially debaptized. In the letter to a parish, Charlotte asks to be erased from the baptism registry. A case went to court over this issue and an appeals court rejected the request in 2014. It said the church could cross out someone's name, but it did not have to erase it completely. For Némon, baptism is a spiritual act. It's a pact between a person and God, and the only ones who can undo it are the two involved the person and God. We can't dissolve it. The church isn't an association or a club that you leave by giving up your card. But he recognizes the symbolism of apostasy, of deliberately asking to be removed from the registry. He worries more about those who don't do it publicly. There is apostasy, which is a complete, public and voluntary renunciation of Catholicism, which leads to a request to be debaptized. But what about all those people who aren't in apostasy, but who are distancing themselves, who, because of what is happening, are leaving quietly, without saying anything. There are probably many more of those people, and it is to those people that we want to say that we are doing everything to make the church a safe house once again. Charlotte is skeptical of any changes in the church and is cynical about what the church is able and willing to hear. When I prepared my letter, I was thinking about what I would say to my diocese, and I decided it was pointless to give reasons and criticism because they won't hear it. It'll have no weight. The French Catholic Church has more than de-baptism to worry about. The number of baptisms is also going down. There are about 200,000 a year, half as many as they were 20 years ago. That's it for this week. Spotlight on France is a podcast from the English service of Radio France International. And this episode was mixed by Air One Rome. If you want to get in touch with us and like what you hear, you can write to us at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Of course, you can also look for Spotlight on France on your favorite podcast platforms or listen to us on our website, rfienglish.com. See you next Friday. Bye. Bye.